Hi, I'm Malka. And I'm David. And you're listening to Synergy, Finding the Biology in the Book of Genesis. Welcome back, friends. It's really good to have you back. And if you're just joining us for the first time, welcome as well. Uh, If you're lost, you've come to the right place. As Gandalf says, not all who wander are lost, so keep that in mind. Um, but yeah, we're, we're happy to have you back at the top of another episode. Yes, and welcome. Remember, we're talking about the intersection of science and religion here. And we're trying to do it in a very specific way to bring the two things together. Right, specifically by looking at various scientific principles in biology and how they match up in a sort of synchronized way with the text of Torah. So this is, obviously this is specific to Judaism and Torah because, you know, other religions have their own set of sacred texts. So... If you haven't listened to our mini-sode to begin this whole uh, series, we highly recommend that you do that. That's true. Pause this recording right now. Don't go any further or you might explode. (laughs) Just kidding. But it's, yes, if you are just jumping in with this episode, that's fine. But you may want to go listen to the mini-sode special first. So... What is our theme for this episode? The overall theme here is sleep and dreams. Yeah, so if you have been listening to previous episodes, you'll know that we have talked quite a bit about various lineages that we find in the book of Genesis. And hopefully you've gotten an appreciation for how important the recounting of those lineages is from, well, from a biological perspective and also from a sort of cultural ancestral perspective. And there's so many places in the Torah that lineages show up, in particular in Genesis, that obviously it's important from a Torah perspective as well. Right. And I'll just share that when I was a kid reading Torah, it's... I remember that I used to roll my eyes every time, like physically or inwardly, (laughs) whenever one of those long, long lineages showed up because it totally escaped me what the point of that was. However, when I was studying at HUC, when I was doing my hard time there, as I like to joke, I remember... One of the Tanakh teachers, Tanakh refer that refers to the general corpus of Hebrew scripture, if you're not familiar with that term. One of my teachers of Tanakh told us that every time there is a genealogy list in Torah, it's actually worth paying attention to. Because yeah, it's a lot to slog through the names, but if you pay attention, there are certain names that recur and Torah always inserts those lists, genealogical lists, to make a point. And it's an important point biologically, too, because we're all members of a lineage, and we're interested in, and we should know as much as we can, about our own personal lineage. Yes, you have to know your roots. But anyway, 
here we are saying we're going to change the topic and we're banging on about lineages. Well, it's relevant <laughs> in the sense that one of the main characters that we're going to talk about today is Joseph. We're going to get to him in more detail later on. Yosef. Yosef. He's part of a lineage. He's part of the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, but remember, he's not the firstborn <laughs> but he of his, of his generation, but he still has a very, very important lineage in, in, in our history. Yes, he does. And particularly in the case of Yosef, some people call him Yosef HaTzadik or Joseph the Righteous One. He is, you may or may not know that he's known for dreams and his dream interpretation. So that's what we're going to be focusing on today. But let's talk a little bit about sleep first. Yes. All right. I'd like to talk a little bit about sleep from a biological perspective. Think about it. Sleep in among living organisms is almost universal. As far as we know, it's almost it's universal. Think and for human beings, we spend up to a third of our lives in sleep. It's got to be important. Got to be important. Not unless you do speed. <laughs> Well, you can only do that for a certain amount of time, and then it's going to catch up with you. Wait, do zombies sleep? <laughs> See zombies if... are zombies are are not are, are not living. But I'm they're undead. About living organisms. <laughs> but they're undead. <laughs> See, okay, guys, I want a full Talmudic style debate on whether or not zombies sleep, and I want y'all to bring in references from like. All the pop culture movies of Zombieland, Living Dead, whatever, what have you, go. This is your assignment. Okay, but we'll have to let's we'll come back to that in another another episode. You can you can send us what all the research that you've done on being undead, being a zombie, or being undead. Right. right. For now, again, think about how important sleep is. A lot. So again, we spend a huge amount of time, portion of our lives, in sleep. You think it's important for your brain. It's a lot of time where your brain sorts out short-term versus long-term memories that you want to be kept versus short-term memories that can be discarded. Um, it's a time for your body to, to restore depleted energy, um, form of like when Seven of Nine regenerates um, on yes, Star Trek, seven she's, of nine. she's that's really what sleep is a, a form of what sleep is all she's about. She's reconnecting to the hive mind. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and it, we also know that it, that's a time when toxic elements that have accumulated in cells and in your body can be sorted out for removal from your from your body. Well, so sleep is really important. Um, sleep and sleep is the time when we dream. Too. So that's really what we want to get to is we can talk about daydreams as well. I don't, I, we all have daydreams. In fact, I don't think I would have gotten through elementary school if I didn't, <laughs> wasn't able to daydream. But um, we're, we're talking about sleep dreams here. So tell me more about elementary school. <laughs> tell me more about C stage. Oh, sorry. That's the wrong podcast. Sorry, 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 sorry. <laughs> So although in this segment, we're going to focus on dreams of Joseph, let me ask you, Malka, are there some other places where, in, where important dreams occur in the Torah? Oh, yes, absolutely. 
Torah recounts multiple instances of dreams, some of which have to do with Yosef and his saga. And what's interesting is that Torah recounts scenarios that are actual dreams because Torah states very clearly, so-and-so dreamed. And it also recounts daydream-like scenarios where you're not exactly sure if a person is awake or asleep. And while we don't have that key phrase of so-and-so dreamed, it's a very, when you really sit with the text and you look at the language used, it's this very sort of surreal context where things are a little bit upended, everything is, you feel a little bit ungrounded. And so more specifically, we have Yaakov, Yosef's father, Jacob, who has dreams. He's famous, of course, for his dream of the ladder and the angels going up and down the ladder. And interestingly enough, a scenario where it's dream-like, but we're not sure if he is actually dreaming, is the scenario where Yaakov wrestles with the angel. And, or, well, okay, so here I have to be a nudnik and say the text never actually says angel, it just says ish. And I really wonder why people have gotten this, it's probably because of crappy translations. I, I wonder where this idea of angel comes from, because in Torah text, there are really specific terms used for when Torah is referring to an angel, like malach is the most common term used for when an angel is being referenced, or like Malach Elohim, or something. So anyway, Torah never says angel, it just says ish, man. <laughs> messenger, agent, whatever, yes. Well, okay. ish is just man. man. Malach yes. is a messenger or an angel. Okay. Okay. So then we have Yosef's dreams, which we're going to get more into in depth. Yosef himself has dreams, the Torah recounts, and there are also the dreams of Paro, which drawing a clear distinction between this oh, Paro Pharaoh, of course, this Pharaoh is not the Pharaoh of the Exodus story. This Pharaoh is, neither of them are named, interestingly enough, but this Pharaoh that Yosef deals with is not at all the Pharaoh of the Exodus. That's a different guy different generation, whatever. Maybe part of the same lineage, but totally different Pavo. All right, so let's go back a little bit and set and set up the story of how it is that Pharaoh is involved here at all in the first place. Yes. Yes, context is key whenever we're discussing anything that has to do with Torah or Tanakh, uh, the corpus of Hebrew scripture at large. and. Well, I mean, I guess you could say the same thing for scientific pursuits as well, right? Yes, absolutely. So <laughs> this is actually a pretty complicated story, so I will try my best to summarize it coherently and without taking 45 minutes. <laughs> so Yosef is the youngest, second to youngest son of Yaakov, Jacob, who, remember, he has multiple wives. He has a lot of sons through these four wives that he has. And Yosef is his favorite son because he's the son of Rachel, of Rachel, who was the one that he loved all along. 
and he went through all of that service just to marry her. Now, Yosef is, as we said before, he's known for his dreaming abilities and his connection to dreams. And so the first scene where we're introduced to Yosef is where he's recounting a dream that he had to his 10 older brothers. And he goes, hey guys, guess what? I had like this awesome dream last night where you're never gonna guess what happened. So you guys were all sheaves of wheat and so was I, and you bowed down to me. And so obviously his brothers weren't just like, hey bro, cool story. They were really, really irritated with him. And unfortunately, Yosef doesn't stop there. because He keeps piling on. Yeah, he's, he's a little dense. So then he goes to his father, Yaakov, and he's like, Daddy, guess what? I had this other dream. And in it, the moon and the stars bowed down to me. And, and Yaakov responds in frustration. And he basically says, why are you telling us this? This is so unhelpful. You're just going to annoy everybody. And that is essentially what happened because Yosef's 10 older brothers are in fact so irritated with him that they decide that they're going to kill him. So they're out, the brothers are out tending sheep. Yosef comes after them. They throw him into a pit and they leave him there to die. So they're sitting around having a nice lunch. They're eating shawarma and their hummus and whatever. And so Yehuda, Judah, one of his older brothers, starts having some second thoughts and he starts feeling guilty. And he says, Yehuda says to his brothers, you know, guys, I think maybe we went a little bit too far. Do you think maybe it would be better if we like sold him into slavery? Because then, you know, like he'd be out of our hair. But we can we... <laughs> make a little money on the deal. Exactly. We can make some money, but then we won't have his blood on our hands. And, you know, I'm, I'm just saying, like, maybe we can really make this work for us. And the brothers are like, hey, that's a great idea. And so Ruben, Ruben gets up to go to the pit where Yosef is so they can sell him to Ishmaelites, which we're not clear exactly who those are, other than descendants of Ishmael. They're passing, they're passing traders. Yeah, traders so, some, some sort of nomadic them. traders. Right. Reuven goes to the pit to take Yosef out, and he is gone. Because, as it happened, Midianite traders got there first, and they, they heard him screaming from the pit, and so they took him out, and Yosef, by that time, was well heading on his way to Egypt, where he is going to be sold as a slave. And this starts the whole entire saga of Yosef. So the saga doesn't actually stop there, and believe it or not, this is all background information to the actual topic that we're going to get to, which is, I mean, you you start to see the more Torah that you study, the more you realize that there's so many different factors that you have to take into account. Because there, it's, even though the text of Torah can be very, very sparse in terms of the details that it actually relays to us, the context, as you can hopefully see, is, is really rich. So, Yosef is now heading, barreling on his way towards Egypt, where he's sold as a slave. 
And in a, a turn of fate or whatever you want to call it, Yosef finds himself in the house of an Egyptian, a very wealthy Egyptian called Potiphar. And Yosef, when we first encounter him in the story, he's annoying. He's a little bit prissy. He like, there are some Talmudic rabbis that love to theorize that he spent time like doing his makeup and like fixing his hair in the morning. And like, it's Midrash, it's biblical fan fiction. So, but the point is that Yosef is kind of annoying as a character when we first meet him. He's a little immature. However, when he finds himself in Potiphar's house, he actually works his way up in the ranks of slaves and he becomes Potiphar's most trusted servant. And that doesn't sit well with Mrs. Potiphar, the wife, because she really likes Yosef. She thinks he's super hot and she wants to get some of that. And so she tries to entice Yosef to sleep with her and he's like, mm, no, I just don't think that's going to sit well with your husband. Mm, I don't know about this. So what does she do? She decides that she is going to accuse him of raping her. And in a tale as old as time, unfortunately, there's no sort of like trial. There, It's this claim that's really weak and basically unsupported lands Yosef in jail. So when he's there, he starts making friends with some of the other prisoners and he interprets their dreams for them. They, they tell, the prisoners tell Yosef their dreams. He interprets them correctly and they form a friendship, particularly Pharaoh's cupbearer and his baker. And Yosef says to them, hey, when you get out, remember your friend here in jail. So they eventually do get out. And through a whole nother set of twists and turns, it so happens that Paro, Pharaoh, is having these dreams that he can't decipher. And the cupbearer who is restored and he ends up being restored into Paro's service, one day he remembers all of a sudden this guy Yosef that he met while he was imprisoned and he says um so by the way i don't know if this is helpful but there's a guy sitting in your prison who's actually really good at interpreting dreams and so yosef is brought before paro and this is finally where we get to the bulk of what we're talking about in this episode because paro is going to relate his dreams to yosef All right, so we're at the point where we're ready to hear Pharaoh's dreams. But before we start that, let me remind you that dreams are, are an altered state, can be an altered state of reality. Time can be compressed or stretched out in a dream. We don't necessarily, things that happen in dreams don't necessarily have to follow the same physical laws of the universe that we operate in in our daily lives. Hence flying dreams. Fly, you can fly <laughs> in your dreams, do all kinds of things. Um, but the dreams are there to to tell us things, and we need so that's why the interpretation of dreams can be very important. All right, let's take a look at the actual text. This is the parsha we call Miketz, named Miketz, 
And so it's Genesis chapter 41, verses 1 through 7. והנה שבע פרות אחרות עולות אחריהן מן היאור רעות מראה ודקות בשר ותעמודנה אצל הפרות על שפת היאור. ותאכלנה הפרות רעות המראה ודקות הבשר את שבע הפרות יפות המראה והבריאות ויקת פרו. וישן ויחלום שנית והנה שבע שיבלים עולות בקנה אחד בריאות וטובות, והנה שבע שיבלים דקות ושדופות קדים צומחות אחריהן. ותבלנה השיבלים הדקות את שבע השיבלים הבריאות והמלאות ויקת פרעה, והנה חלום. After two years time, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile, when out of the Nile there came up seven cows, handsome and sturdy, and they grazed in the reed grass. But presently, seven other cows came up from the Nile close behind them, ugly and gaunt, and stood beside the cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, gaunt cows ate up the seven handsome, sturdy cows, and Pharaoh awoke. He fell asleep and dreamed a second time. Seven ears of grain, solid and healthy, grew on a single stalk. But close behind them sprouted seven ears, thin and scorched by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven solid and full ears. Then Pharaoh awoke. It was a dream. Well, it seems to me that the, the, what Pharaoh was describing in his dreams is pretty straightforward. It seems pretty simple and easy. But well, because you know what the outcome is. Yeah, well... <laughs> But Spoiler why, do you, do you, why do you think that Pharaoh couldn't, couldn't understand his own dreams? Well, it's a legitimate question because when I remember as a young adult reading this parasha, it was in English, of course, because I didn't yet speak Hebrew fluently. And I actually remember thinking to myself, this dream is so bizarre. And But if you, however, if you think about it within the context of history at the time, Paro is the most powerful ruler in all of the ancient Near East. And, you know, like, remember, Egypt at the time had controlled all of a vast territory. They had all of these colonies. They had shipping routes all over the place. They, they were an empire, right? And that means that Pharaoh had at his beck and call basically all of the wisest and most knowledgeable, educated people that you could imagine. So then the question becomes more intriguing. Why could, and, and Torah says too, that all Pharaoh calls on all of his wise men and his soothsayers, his magicians or whatever, none of them could, they were all sitting there scratching their heads going, And part of, part of it may have been that they were afraid to say too much because they, that's you know, true. Pharaoh would, he would, you know, if he didn't like the answer you gave him, he might ex have you executed. Well, 
That's true, but I don't know if that was so much the style of this pharaoh as so much as the next pharaoh that we hear about in Torah, which which is of course the pharaoh of, of who enslaves the Israelites and who is is the pharaoh of the story of the Exodus. That like, comes later, though. Yes. Right. This that's different pharaoh, but it's true. Like these rulers that held such vast powers, and that was definitely part of the culture of the ancient Near East. Like rulers had absolute power. If you did something they didn't like, that was it. They dispatched of you without thinking anything of it. But to shed some light on this question, I'm going to actually reference a friend of mine who is an Israeli rabbi. His name is Nachliel Selavan, who incidentally does his own podcast, if you're interested. It's called... Parasha Study Plus. So shout out to Parasha Study Plus. It's amazing. I follow it. Great resource. Anyway, so he, Nachliel, talks about this very section of Parashat Miketz. And basically what he says is, I'm summarizing here, but he says, thinking about it from the Egyptian perspective, they we're looking at it from their own cultural context. For instance, here in America, if we say, if someone says to you, when you picture a bald eagle, what comes to mind? There, we as Americans will automatically have things that come to mind that are associated in our culture with the bald eagle. Now, in ancient Egyptian culture, they had two gods, possibly even more than that, that had the heads of cows. They were, well, going with the Greek pronunciation, they're Apis and Happy. Or Happy? I don't know. (laughs) Happy. Anyway, they had these two deities that had the heads of cows. So the Egyptians are thinking about it from that context. So when we take that into account, it becomes a little bit more understandable why the Egyptians were thinking... We're sitting there scratching their heads going, I just don't get it. They couldn't, they couldn't make a simple interpretation of it. They couldn't do the Peshat interpretation because it was in, their, in the cultural context, as you said. That, that had its own meaning. The cow, the cow head, had it, the cow part had its own meaning. Right. And I mean, you could also argue that, and I'm sure some commentators have argued, that God hid the meaning of the dream from the dream interpreters and the wise men and soothsayers so he could sort of prepare the way for Yosef to come onto the scene and say, hey, (laughs) I hear you need a dream interpreted. Well, it just so happens. (laughs) Also, what must have further puzzled the Egyptians is that there's a particular detail that of, of the language that Torah uses. Torah describes the first seven cows that come out of the Nile as yefot hamare. It's cows that are beautiful, beautiful to look at. Mm. That's not necessarily something that we associate with cows, especially given that language that Torah uses to talk about animals like cows later on is, it's like, pure and impure, chiefly because Torah is talking about animals that are acceptable for temple offerings. But it's just an interesting detail to think about that the phrase used to describe these cows is 
Yefot Hamare, these like beautiful looking cows. Well, and we know there are cultures today, like Hindus, they they venerate cows. They think cows are sacred, uh, right? You know, it's not. It's, it is. It is. Uh, it is something that happens. So, although no one, none of Pharaoh's regular people could interpret the dreams, the cupbearer of Pharaoh finally decides to speak up, and he says to Pharaoh, "When I was in jail, there was a Hebrew youth that was also in the jail that had the ability to interpret dreams." And well, interesting side note, Yosef actually told the cupbearer, "Hey, by the way, remember me when when you get out. You get just out just jail. remember yeah. that I'm right. here." Right. So let's read two more lines, uh, two more verses in chapter 41 that describe Pharaoh then coming to, going to, bringing Joseph out to try to have Joseph interpret his dreams. At the suggestion of his At the suggestion of his yeah. So this is Janet, this is 41, 15, and 16. <laughs> ופוטר אין אותו, ואני שמעתי אליך לאמור, תשמע חלום לפתור אותו. ויען יוסף את פרעה לאמור, בלעדיי אלוהים יענה את שלום פרעה. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, but no one can interpret it. Now I've heard it said of you that for you to hear a dream is to tell its meaning. Joseph answered Pharaoh saying, not I, God will see to Pharaoh's welfare. So there are two different things here that I want to call your attention to. Parao in verse 15 is talking about Joseph's ability to interpret dreams. And Yosef uses a very, very interesting phrase in verse 16, the following verse. He says, Biladai. Elohim ya'ane et shlom paro. Specifically, the word biladai basically means without me. Like, I have nothing to do with it. So, whereas paro is referring to Yosef's ability to interpret dreams, Yosef is actually bypassing that completely. And I mean, you can, I think it's fair to say that he's referring to his dream interpretation indirectly because he recognizes that it comes from God. It's not actually him. But he's, He's saying, God is going to take care of, of you. It's not, I have nothing to do with it. It's not, he's saying, all right, he's saying it's not only the interpretation of the dream, it's to describe at a higher level what, what's in store for you as Pharaoh. God exactly. is taking care of it. Exactly. And I mean, if you think about it, like, Paro is focusing on the dream interpretation because that's a very pagan perspective. If we can interpret this dream correctly, then X, Y, and Z, the gods will be happy, blah, blah. And Yosef is saying, no, it's God, the creator of the universe, who is going to see to your welfare. This is actually incredibly courageous of Joseph to do that because he has to realize that, in effect, if Pharaoh understands what he's talking about, he, that Pharaoh is going to recognize that Joseph is referring to a higher power, a higher power than that's, even Pharaoh. That's different than the gods that Pharaoh recognizes. Yes, yes. As so it's very, very courageous of him to plant that seed in Pharaoh's mind um, about, about what is going to happen in the future. 
It's true. I mean, maybe this pharaoh was someone you'd like to have beers with, you know? <laughs> Who knows? Like, he seems like a pretty chill guy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so anyway, what happens after this, of course, is pharaoh recounts his dreams again to Yosef, and Yosef says, look, I'm going to tell you what's really going on here. And so going back to the Hebrew text, in I'm going to read verses 25 through 27 in chapter 41, and we'll see what Yosef says. Vayomer Yosef el paro, chalom paro echadu, et asher ha-Elohim higid le Sheva parot hatovot sheva shanim hena, vesheva hashibalim hatovot sheva shanim hena, chalomechatu, vesheva haparot harakot veharaot haolot acharehen sheva shanim hena, vesheva hashibalim harakot shdufot hakadim yusheva shnei raav. And Joseph said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's dreams are one and the same. God has told Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven healthy cows are seven years, and the seven healthy ears are seven years. It is the same dream. The seven lean and ugly cows that follow are seven years, as are also the seven empty ears, empty ears scorched by the east wind. They are seven years of famine. So Yosef obviously does something here that no one else was able to do, that he recognizes that the two dreams are just, essentially they're the same iteration. The second dream is the same iteration of the first dream, just on different terms. And by the way, the he in verse 25, that's God, of course. It's not, it's not God telling Pharaoh what Pharaoh is about to do. It's God telling Pharaoh what God is about to do. Mm-hmm. Just, yes. it's not clear from the yes. English. But it's significant that he's warning Pharaoh that there are going to be seven years of plenty and followed by seven years of famine. Right. Well, I think what's even more significant is that Yosef is essentially a nobody. And I mean, he's not exactly a nobody, but he's fallen out of his good standing that through no fault of his own. But he was he was a very high placed servant in Potiphar's house, but then the wife decided that she didn't like that, and he ended up in jail. So now he's a nobody, and Paro decides that he's going to listen to him. So let's read thirty eight to forty, just to confirm that the how Pharaoh restores Joseph to his important status. Yeah, I mean it's it's pretty amazing when you think about it. It's Paro is taking a servant who, for all intents and purposes, for all they knew, was a criminal, and he's acknowledging and that a there's... Hebrew too, right? <laughs> um, yeah, Paro is acknowledging that he has something important to contribute here. So, verse thirty-eight: Vayomer Paro el avadav. הנמצא חזה איש אשר רוח אלוהים בו. ויומר פרעה אל יוסף, אחרי הודיע אלוהים אותך את כל זאת, אין נבון וחכם כמוך. אתה תהיה על ביתי ועל פיך ישק כל עמי, רק הכיסא אגדל ממך. And Pharaoh said to his courtiers, 
Could we find another like him, a man in whom is the spirit of God? So Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is none so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my court, and by your command shall all my people be directed. Only with respect to the throne shall I be superior to you. So this is pretty amazing because, again, now already Pharaoh's gotten the idea that this is God speaking through Joseph. This yeah, is God and, speaking. and the fact that Pharaoh uses the term Ruach Elohim, that is language that we find, well, it's language that we find in conjunction with, uh, in the beginning of Genesis, when God is creating the universe. Ruach Elohim merachefetz al hamayim, for instance. So it's, Torah, again, is using very pointed language. Anytime you see a phrase that kind of like pings something in your brain, you can bet that Torah is using that language very pointedly to get you to think about the context and to get you to remember other contexts in which that language is used so you can make connections and really get the meaning of what Torah is trying to say. Yes. But again, just to summarize, because Joseph is recounting what God, what's happening of, through his understanding of God, uh, he's elevated from being in prison to being the number two guy in all of Egypt. Which is pretty amazing. Pretty amazing, yes. <laughs> he's, he's just in the matter, in a matter of minutes, basically overnight. Yes. He's gone from, again, a nobody to the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. He's, he's now Pharaoh's right-hand man which is well, pretty astonishing. Well, and the, the, Egypt was already uh, certainly a, an, an important, you know, important country in that part of the world, but now they're going to be a, now they're going to be a superpower because they're going to be prepared for seven years of famine that's going to devastate the entire rest of the region. Yes, exactly. And interesting archaeological side note, at least from what I've heard, they have that archaeologists have actually found evidence of enormous grain cisterns in Egypt, showing that there was a time of severe famine in this region. However, Egypt managed to stockpile enough grain that they not only were able to see to the welfare of their own people, but that just reinforced their status as a superpower in the ancient Near East. That, right, and as we know, this is actually this is not the first time that there's been a famine in the Middle East, and people that Torah recounts that Torah recounts that there's been a famine in the Middle East, and it's not the first time that the Jews go down to the Hebrews go down to Egypt to get to get food, but this is different. This is different. This is a major event where eventually uh, it's the reason that we that all of the Hebrews end up migrating to Egypt. Exactly, because Avraham and Yitzchak actually both go down to Egypt because of famine, but they don't stay there. They don't stay. The difference this time is that Yosef stays, his brothers end up coming, Yaakov comes with them, they stay, they have children, they stay, and they just, they settle there. They're given property in Egypt yeah. to settle and, and, and grow as a nation. Right. <laughs> Another spoiler. <laughs> no, don't do it. 
No, it's interesting to remember that not only do we have the biological elements of the dreams themselves, the cows as animals, the corn as plants that are certainly important uh, in all of the Middle East, but it's the famine itself. The, that's a major biological event that drives this migration, ultimately drives this migration event that causes the, heat, the Jewish people to end up in Egypt. And so again, migrations are an important biological phenomenon. That have been that have been an important part of human history, um, and this this just reminds us again how important this uh, the the biological events are that lead to us staying in Egypt for many many generations. Right, and and of course, also what we're getting at here is that the Exodus is the ultimate crucible for the Jewish people. The, because... the fact that the, the Jew we ended up in Egypt. And that really was formative for us as a nation. Right. Because if we hadn't ended up in Egypt, we never would have had an exodus. We never would have received Torah at Sinai. And we might not be here today. Yes. Shalom. (laughs) So thank you, Pharaoh. (laughs) Thank you, Egypt. Thank you, Pharaoh. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Sorry. That's all right. It was meant to be. Right. So these dreams are so important in developing the story and understanding what happened in the story, how things took place and and the biological aspects of the the animals, the plants, the famine, as we talked about. But what do what do the do the rabbis have commentaries about dreams in general? No. (laughs) Just Uh, kidding. Are you, come on, guys, you didn't think I was serious. There's there's basically nothing that the rabbis don't comment on. The rabbis even comment on whether or not it's appropriate for you to wipe yourself with a stone when you use a bathroom. The bathroom. <laughs> you think I'm joking? I am not. Well, but, but, but your, the commentary on the dreams reflects the fact that the dreams are important. Yes, absolutely. So... There's something really critical that our Rabbanim want us to really understand when it comes to dreams. On the one hand, a lot of them do, well, in general, there's a general acknowledgement that dreams, for us regular schmoes, (laughs) dreams can be a form of prophecy. And the rabbis also recognize that there are different kinds of dreams. There are dreams in which, and by the way, this was thousands of years before we had any sort of neuroscience telling us anything about the brain, how it functions during sleep, and how it functions when we're dreaming. And the rabbis acknowledged that there are different kinds of dreams. There are dreams that are, are they kind of see them as nonsense, but they're, they're the dreams in which your brain processes events from the day where it's just like cleaning itself out, filing away information there. And there are the dreams that are metaphorical. They're trying, like Pharaoh's dreams, they're trying to tell you something. And there are dreams that contain a form of prophecy. Now, when it comes to prophecy, this is a bit of a deeper conversation, but prophecy from a Jewish perspective is not about foretelling what is going to happen in the future. It's much more about how our choices in the present 
affect what's going to happen in the future. So Paro's dreams are interesting because they're highly symbolic and they're also relating to the future. However, there's, there's always an acknowledgement in Jewish writings that our choices in the present influence what happens in the future. Like we can get warnings about what's going to happen in the future if we do this, as opposed to if we do that. That's what the prophets do for us. Exactly. The, the prophets, you should never think of Hebrew Israelite prophets like the oracles of Delphi, where they're like these poor little drugged girls who are sitting on a crack, maybe on crack. <laughs> like in the pagan perspective, the future is written in stone. In the pagan mindset, there is actually no such thing as free will. However, in Jewish thought, we, again, like our choices in the present influence what is going to happen in the future. And we, and we have, to, to a larger extent than we may realize, we have control over these things. God have, is ultimately in control. Yes. But yeah, we, or I shouldn't say we have control. We have power to guide the course of events. We have to. We have to take an active role to make sure that things happen in a certain way. Right. So, so the rabbis say that we should, they encourage us to pay attention to dreams that are, that are symbolic and dreams that maybe even have a little tipa, as the word is in Hebrew, like a little tiny bit of nevuah, of prophecy. But we have to be very careful because there's a fine line between dream interpretation to give us clarity as to what is happening in our present lives and divination because divination involves trying to predict events that you can't actually predict because nobody can predict the future and divination is a pagan thing. So it's not fortune telling. No, absolutely that's not. not. That's not a, that's not a good thing. Yeah. Just, just it's ask just, the prophet <clears throat> Samuel. <laughs> He'll give you a whole earful. <laughs> <clears throat> but it is a reminder that we, <laughs> We have a part to play in what happens in the future, as you said. Exactly. Because, like, I mean, when you read prophetical writings, at least I personally come away with, the more I read of them, the more I come away with a sense of God essentially just gives us what we ask for. If we're, quote unquote, asking for something by doing certain things and pursuing a certain path, God just says, okay, if that's what you want, here you go. So we have to choose very carefully which path we go down because God is just going to say, all right, here you go. If we do the right thing, we have to do the right thing. Well, it goes either way. Like if we, and this actually relates to a parasha that comes much later in Torah, but God says, if you do this, I'm going to reward you. And if you do this, there's going to be severe consequences. There are going to be severe consequences. And God, it's, I mean, God wants us to do the right thing. But if we choose to veer from what we're supposed to do, there are going to be consequences. And God is not going to hesitate to mete out consequences. Is the, the blessings and the curses. Exactly. Yes. Right. <laughs> So this brings us to the end of another episode, and we hope you've learned something about dreams and might think about how this, your own, the own the dreams that you might have, 
might be important for deciding what you do with your life. Yeah, and I think, I mean, as a person who is a big fan of Carl Jung, say, who is unfortunately not Jewish, but <laughs> still a very nice boy. <laughs> um, I'm a big believer in the idea that dreams can give us a lot of clarity as to, they, they don't necessarily predict a future that is written in stone, but they can give us a lot of clarity as to what is going on in our own lives in this present moment. So I think they're, as, as long as they're not, you know, the dreams that are just your brain sorting through information, obviously that's just what your brain does, but you know, those dreams that sort of resonate with a deeper significance, you can always feel it, I, I think. And so I think those are worth paying attention to. Yes, absolutely. Well, friends, thanks so much for listening. Thank you, yes. <laughs> so, um, I keep forgetting to mention, if you want to leave us a voice message, if you're like, well, screw email, that's for people having middle-life crisis, crises, and I'm a Gen Xer, or I'm a millennial, I don't take out my phone keyboard unless I'm texting or Snapchatting, or what have you. <laughs> All this is by way of saying you can leave us a voicemail, voice message through the Anchor app. And I trust I don't need to tell you how to download an app. <laughs> but if you want to, you can email us at biologyandgenesis at gmail.com. Make sure to like, make sure to subscribe, tell all your friends. Uh, we really would love to hear from you. Yeah. That's what you think. Seriously, we, we appreciate feedback, whether it's like, I love this, I wish you did more of that, I wish you didn't do that. It's all, it's all good. It's, it's all good. It's yeah. all welcome. Friends, we hope you are staying healthy and sane. And... Lejito out for now. Yes. I was like trying to think of a song. <laughs> all I can... Never mind. <laughs> okay. Bye, guys. Until next time. Bye. Bye-bye.